John chapter 18 verses 1 to 27. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Jesus, Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken will be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers, with his commander and the Jewish officials, arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood round a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I was taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a cock began to crow. Mark is going to come and preach God's word to us. Uh, it be good for us to pray first. Lord, I want to thank you to you, God, uh, that has revealed himself to us. We're not left in darkness wondering who you are and how we find our way to you. You have revealed yourself fully through Jesus and continue to reveal yourself through your words. And so I want to thank you for the work you've been doing in Marco in his preparation, speaking to him, preparing him for this time. Would we have ears to hear your voice and hear your words? 
would we have minds that would understand and would we have hearts ready to receive it and be changed by it. Amen. The, um, the late Lieutenant General Robert Sink was a senior United States Army officer uh, during World War II. He was most esteemed for his command of the 506 Parachute Regiment. Um, and he, in fact, made uh, two jumps in World War II, one, into, one on D-Day and one, one in Operation Market Garden. So revered, in fact, was his leadership that the 506 Regiment became known as the 506 Sink. And on the eve of D-Day, on the eve of the jump, he, uh, together, which he made together with 2,000 others, his memorandum was read out at airfields across the south of England. Soldiers of the regiment, today and as you read this, you are en route to that great adventure for which you have trained for over two years. Tonight is the night of nights. And all the world will forever remember their bravery and sacrifice on that night. And the Apostle John records for us another night. Heaven had anticipated this night 2,000 years ago and the morning that followed it from eternity past. And all of history centers on these hours. 2,000 years ago in a garden just outside the walls of Jerusalem. This was the night of nights. This was the Bible says, the hour of darkness. Now, sometimes night and dark just have to do with the setting of the sun. But at other times, darkness in the Bible is a spiritual force. Jesus himself spoke of the power of darkness. The world itself, the Bible says, is divided into the children of light and the children of darkness, the Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul spoke of how we... Christians do battle against the cosmic powers that rule this present darkness. Well, what happened that night of nights? Well, this was not just a skirmish among men. Jesus in John 8 verse 12 says, I am the light of the world. And again in John 12 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And this night, all the powers of darkness form for attack. Just minutes before this, Jesus had prayed for his disciples, the original 11, and for you and me. Every believer throughout the ages that we would see his glory. You remember he prayed, Father, I desire that they whom you have given me would be with me where I am to see my glory. And having prayed for us that we would one day be with him, he gave himself over to the power of darkness to be tortured, to be humiliated, to be condemned and killed. He suffered under the power of darkness to accomplish all that needed to be accomplished for his prayer to be answered, for his desire to be fulfilled, that we who believe will one day be with him where he is right now. Well, what happened that night in the darkness? Jesus moved step by step toward the cross. And even as he did so, he shone as brightly a light ever shone. One day we will see him full in his full unveiled glory. But the Apostle John wrote this so that we would see his glory even now, even this night. Darkness raged that night. Darkness had a goal. 
to put out the light forever. But John tells of the darkness, not because he's in awe of it or afraid of it or that he wants to give the darkness any glory. He tells of the darkness because he wants you to see the light that shines so brightly in it. So we will follow John through the darkness to see the light that blazed that night. And darkness that night took the form of betrayal, rejection, hatred, and denial. Just hours earlier, Jesus had washed the feet of his 12 disciples, 12 at that point, acting out a parable for them to show that he was the Savior come to wash clean their souls of the stain of sin. And he loved these men. Do you remember how this this whole scene, the upper room, opened? If you want to turn back in your Bibles to the beginning of chapter 13, 13 verse 1, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus loved his own, all 12 of them. He knew, John tells us he knew, he knew that Judas would betray him, but still he washed his feet, inviting him to repent, inviting him to true fellowship with himself and with the Father, not just association. But Judas had closed his heart, and John says that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Think of that, troubled in spirit. Jesus wasn't indifferent to Judas's betrayal. He felt the pain of betrayal, of friendship spurned. Jesus loved Judas, and betrayal grieved him. Moments later, John tells us in uh, chapter 13, verse 27, that Satan entered into Judas. And in verse 30, he left Jesus and went out, John says. You can almost feel the foreboding in his words. Judas went out and it was night. He refused to believe. And he became, in that moment, a pawn of Satan. And the very next verse, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Satan marshals his troops and Jesus' hour has come. He had always known it would. He had told his mother not to hurry God's timetable at the wedding in Cana, saying, my hour has not yet come. And again at the temple in Jerusalem, the crowds tried to seize him, but he wouldn't permit it. Why, John says, his hour had not yet come. But now one of his own disciples, Judas, whose feet he had just washed, to whom he gave bread at the table just moments before, goes out and puts into motion the machine of darkness that seeks his death. Satan entered into Judas. This is no mere human conspiracy. Satan entered into Judas, and Judas betrayed him to the darkness. Back now to chapter 18. And in the darkness, John records to emphasize the point, carrying lanterns and torches and weapons. Who comes? Judas, the pawn of Satan. 
together with some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jewish temple and of Jewish society, his own people. I was sent for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Jesus had said earlier. He had said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. He grieved. He came to his own, John recorded in chapter 1, verse 11, and his own people did not receive him. Betrayed by his disciple, rejected by his own people, whose salvation he longed for, whose salvation thousands of years of God's revelation and grace and covenant faithfulness had pointed to. Spurned, rejected. But Judas didn't just bring the Jewish leaders with him. This detachment of soldiers was Roman. Roman troops were normally stationed at Caesarea, which was 50-ish miles to the north. But during special Jewish feasts, and remember this is Passover, they garrisoned at the fortress of Antonia, which was just outside the temple complex, to police the big crowds that came to the city and to be right there to squash any rebellion that might arise in the religious nationalistic fervor of the festival. The garrison was only half a mile or so from Gethsemane, and the Jewish leaders persuaded them, the soldiers, that there was a risk of riot when they arrested somebody as popular of Jesus, as, as Jesus. His own people not only rejected him, but lied about him, leading the Romans to believe that he was a dangerous criminal, a rebel, a political crusader with an anti-Roman agenda who was likely to stir the crowds to violence to save his own skin. So probably at least several dozen, quite possibly more than a hundred, Roman soldiers joined the machine of darkness. The Jewish power brokers were intent not only on arresting Jesus, but on humiliating him. Betrayed, rejected, slandered, humiliated. And they took him to Annas, the high priest's father-in-law. Why to Annas and not to Caiaphas himself? Well, high priests were appointed for life. Annas had been the high priest from the year uh, 6 AD to 15 uh, until Pontius Pilate's predecessor, uh, Valerius Grantus, deposed him, taking control asserting its authority even over the most sacred institution of Jewish life. This was Rome's way of showing who was boss. Maybe they thought that uh, others they put in power would be more compliant, but mainly it was just to show who was in charge, that they controlled not only the territory, not only the economic affairs of the day, but even the most sacred, most precious institutions of what it meant to be Jewish. It's under their thumb. Rome's dominion was total. Think how the high priests must have hated Rome. Yet this night they conspired with them against their own. So Caiaphas had been appointed, but Annas had been the high priest, as had five of his own sons, and now his son-in-law. He was patriarch of the most powerful family in Judaism. So they brought Jesus to him. And I can't help but think that John intends us to see an irony here. 
In this account, Annas is named twice, Caiaphas four times. The term chief priest is used nine, it once, and high priest nine times. The high priest's servant, Malchus, is named. The high priest's residence, his house and courtyard are referred to, as is the high priest's personal bodyguard who struck Jesus. This account is full of the high priesthood. And Jesus, the true high priest, has just prayed his great high priestly prayer and walks resolutely through this night of nights to the cross where he will, as true high priest, sacrifice his own flesh and blood for you and for me. And here he stands face to face with the institutional high priesthood. But the priesthood is broken. In verse 19, Annas questions Jesus about his, about his disciples, wanting to know how large his following is, how much risk they pose to the already uneasy relationship with Rome, to the uneasy alliance between his family and the ruling power. To preserve the power and privilege of his family, that's his first concern. He goes on to question Jesus about his teaching, about his theology. Was he concerned for truth? Don't think so. Jesus' response is very suggestive. You see, proper Jewish judicial procedure dictated that guilt could only be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Annas interrogates Jesus, no doubt accusing him of leading the, pe the people into apostasy. And Jesus replies in 18 verse 20, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? There are hundreds, thousands of witnesses to my teaching. Ask them if I am guilty. Bring witnesses. One of the high priest bodyguards struck Jesus across the face. Is that how you answer the high priest? If I am wrong, bring witnesses to say what I've done wrong. But if I am telling the truth, why do you strike me? Well, because they hated him. Jesus himself said so. In chapter 7, the world hates me because, note the wording, because I testify that its works are evil. Jesus is asking for nothing more than a fair trial, proper procedure. But he won't get a fair trial because a fair trial would expose the evil of his accusers. This priesthood, the house of Annas, the system of Jewish worship has become part of the world. Just as Jesus said in chapter 3 verse 19 that he, the light, has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. Jesus was betrayed, rejected, slandered, hated, and denied, finally, by a true friend. Three times this dark night, Peter denied Jesus. The third time they asked him, aren't you one of his disciples? And Matthew tells us that Peter denied it with curses and swearing. 
to prove that he belonged not to Jesus, but to the world. And if Jesus was troubled in spirit by the betrayal of Judas, how he would have grieved over the denial of his true friend, Peter. Not the betrayal of a pawn of Satan, but the denial of a true friend. Peter loved Jesus passionately. He sometimes acted rashly. He had feet of clay like all of us. Peter was the one who came to Jesus' defense in the garden, pulling out his sword and cutting off Malchus's ear. This is the love of a friend. But when the heat was on, when Peter feared that Jesus' fate might be his, he denied Jesus. This was the night of darkness. But John's account is not about the darkness. It's about Jesus. Friends, just as the stars shine brightest on the darkest moonless night, so the glory of Jesus blazed on this dark night. Look again in verse 1 and 2. Jesus went to the garden, it says, where he often met with his disciples. He went where he knew Judas would find him. When Satan entered Judas and he went into the night to put this whole affair in motion, Jesus, knowing what was coming, could have run. He could have have hid. No. He went exactly to the spot where he knew Judas would come looking for him. The final battle has begun. Darkness will this night and into the morning. Darkness will do its worst. But the light of Jesus shines in the darkness. Let me point to four ways. First, his identity. Judas and the officers of, um, of the priesthood and the Roman soldiers all arrive. Who are you looking for? In verse 4, Jesus asks them, Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Now, this is one place where I wish the English translators had stuck more literally to the wording. Jesus of Nazareth, they sought. I am, he replied. Not I am he, as the English translator. There is no he in the original. Jesus replied simply, I am. They drew back and fell to the ground. I am was how God referred to himself repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. But I don't think the officers of the priesthood drew back because Jesus was in their minds blaspheming. He had said this before. He had referred to himself as I am in the temple in John chapter 8. On that occasion, they picked up stones wanting to stone him. His blasphemy in their ears provoked not fear, as seems to be the case here, but anger. Besides which, that claim would have meant nothing to the Roman soldiers. The truth is, John doesn't tell us exactly what happened. We don't know exactly what happened at that moment, so we can't be sure. But I'll tell you what I think John wants us to see. Jesus of Nazareth they had come for. Jesus the carpenter. Jesus the son of Joseph and Mary. Jesus from that quiet little village up the road. But just for a moment... Jesus drew back the veil of his humanity and disclosed his deity. Jesus of Nazareth he was, son of Joseph he was, but also 
Jesus, the upholder and sustainer of the universe. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, commander of the armies of heaven. Ruler of the angels. And just for a moment, in Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God, he displayed his glory, his majesty, his sheer power. This is who walks through the darkness to the cross this night. For you and for me. Jesus, who the old hymn uh, calls Lord of years, the potentate of time, creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. He revealed his identity in the darkness. Second, he revealed his authority. Earlier in his public ministry, the temple officials, as I said, had tried to arrest him. But as they reached to seize him, John tells us, no one was able to lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But just an hour or so, maybe before this event, Jesus had prayed, Father, the hour has come, beginning of chapter 17. Father, the hour has come. And Jesus permits his own arrest. He even allows himself to be bound. I am has authority, even over the darkness. His identity, his authority, and third, his substitutionary action here. Look at verse 8. I told you that I am, so if you seek me, let these men go. I am, in this hour of darkness, secured the safety of those he loved. It wasn't just their physical safety he was after, although for this moment it was. Again, it was a parable. It was a symbol. It was like the foot washing, showing something. Not only that he was the Savior who would wash their souls clean of the stain of sin, but that he was the substitute who would take their place so that not one of those the Father had given him would be lost. I am, says to the darkness, let my people go. At the beginning of this gospel, John wrote, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And no doubt John remembered this night of darkness and the glory of Jesus as he revealed his identity, as he demonstrated his authority, as he showed himself the substitute, and finally, as he embraced the will of his Father. Look at verse 11 of chapter 18. Put away your sword, Peter. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? In Luke's account of this night, he adds an important detail. He writes, <coughs> excuse me, he writes, Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. This is your hour when darkness reigns. Darkness was growing in confidence through this night. Growing in aggression. In Jesus' betrayal, in rejection, in slander, in hatred, even in violence when the bodyguard hit him, darkness was on the attack. 
Satan was emboldened as things appeared to be going according to his plan. But it only appeared so because Jesus allowed it. For this night and into the next day, he allowed it to appear so. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Even this, even the appearance that darkness reigns, even the humiliation Jesus suffered in the eyes of those who thought that the darkness had brought him down. This is the cup the Father has given, he said. In fact, so great, so absolute, so total was and is Jesus' rule over the forces of darkness that as he allowed that night darkness to vent its hate upon him, he made it his slave. He made the darkness serve the glory of the Father. The ruler of this world is coming. You may remember he had told his disciples towards the end of chapter 14. And do you remember what he said next? The ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. And Jesus' glory on this night of nights, as it ever has and as it forever will be, shines most brightly in his perfect submission to his Father. And more. Jesus made the darkness serve you. Because it is seeing him, Jesus. It is in seeing his glory and loving him that you are saved. And that the Father is glorified in your salvation. Jesus made the darkness not only his slave, but your servant. The light shines in the darkness. John 1 verse 5. And the darkness has not overcome it. Now, friends, briefly in closing, two things. Annas, the high priest, ran a sham trial that night, refusing to call credible witnesses, trying to intimidate Jesus with threats and with violence. He wasn't looking for truth. But what about you? John wrote this gospel, he tells us, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. You have the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and death and resurrection from the dead. You have the writings of the apostles explaining what it all means. Annas didn't want witnesses. He didn't want to evaluate the evidence for Jesus. But what about you? I have come into the world as light, Jesus said, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. You need not remain. But in saying that those who believe do not remain in darkness, Jesus is also saying that the world is in darkness. But you, Kenilworth Community Church, you are the light of Kenilworth. 
together with all in this town who believe. And a light is not lit to be hidden, but to give light to all around. We are now part of the witness. You become like what you most love. Church, I've said this before. So love Jesus with all your hearts, and you will be changed more and more to be like him, just as he shone that dark night. So you will shine right here in these dark days, in this dark place. Let your light shine before others, Jesus says to you, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen. I'm going to pray, and then um, Jim and the team will come up and lead us in song. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus, who even in the darkness, even on this night of nights, and into the next morning that we will hear about next week, even in the hour where darkness appeared to reign, shone like the brightest star of heaven. Open our eyes to see that we would not only believe but be changed to be more and more like our Savior who we love. Let those around us see and come to love him too. Amen. Amen.